I mean, I, I was hired by Marvel in the early aughts to teach a seminar twice a year. I did it for six or seven years straight. And the first day of the seminar was me beating the hobbyism out of the guys who had been assigned to me. You know, there, there's, there's, you know, we are making a living through our hobby. Comics are, are an inoculation process. When you meet comics for the first time, you either are stuck with them or you step away from them. And you, you, if, you're, if you're stuck with them, you can't do anything but. Hey, thanks for listening. And happy Halloween. Some of you know Molly, my wife, is a contemporary fine artist. And today, her month-long gallery installation comes down. I'll place a link in the description. She had a closing reception this weekend, and I noticed her feeling down afterward. And it reminded me of that emotional sugar crash that I've felt many times following periods of hard work on projects or meeting certain moments with uh, elevated energy. Hell, I get it after some of these recordings, but I mostly experience it following writing achievements, and that's like the time when the creeping doubt sneaks its way in. While it's unwelcome, I know it's temporary. I'm sure it's an evolutionary governor to, I don't know, modulate our emotions up and down. I guess there's a nice little reminder that this is part of the creative process. You can't just always be firing on all, all cylinders, all the energy going out. These little down periods maybe kick us back into gear to do the next thing. So last week I mentioned I've activated the membership paid subscriptions on Substack. I think it's like six bucks a month or five bucks a month if you do the annual thing. I, that's the discount. So if you want to support the podcast, and if I get enough people signed up, I can take this, you know, on the road, go to conventions to do live recordings, you know, face to face with some people, which would be fantastic. You know, maybe a sort of a breakfast thing. The link for the subscription is in the description. I hope you do join me. Thanks. This week's guest is Howard Chaikin. I mean, Surprise, <laughs> unless you didn't read the graphic or the show description. Howard, well, there's not a lot to say more than, you know, everyone else has said that he is incredible. He is one of the greats. For me, he is one of the writers that really opened up my mind. And you know, there's probably 10 writers who just really impacted me you know, in the comic industry over the, my lifetime. But Howard was the one that woke me up from straightforward monthlies to, oh, you can do something more with the story. And I'm forever grateful because I don't think I would see the world the way that I do if I didn't read his stuff. So getting to talk to him is quite the exciting moment for me in my creative life. The reason he came on was to pitch his new book, John Benteen's Fargo, Hell on Wheels. He's super excited about this. This is straight up action adventure adaption of a novel in the giant comic format. I'm going to use his language. If you're a fan of his stuff, you're a fan of this. So that's just how I look at it. We got to talk about all sorts of stuff in this one. Not that he's name dropping, but man, he throws praise around for some people that 
are so deserving of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I got a lot of out of this whole talk. I hope you do too. Check out the campaign. It's on Zoop. The link is in the description. You can go to zoop.gg. It'll be there. You can find them on all the social media platforms. You can find uh, the link, I believe, on Howard's Instagram and maybe on his Facebook as well. And those links are here too. And the campaign ends on November 10th. So go check it out. Um, Hell on Wheels. This is me with Howard Chaikin. As every year goes by, the reality of it all becomes <laughs> trip fair, I guess, in that sense, right? I'm getting really bored having spent the last, you know, my, almost my entire life living in a world that is literally on the brink of apocalypse. It's really tiring. You know, it's like... It's, there's, there's this real strange, um, you know, I mean, it's like, the, it's this forced existential, you know, anxiety that, that happens in this structure. And, you know, I, <laughs> let's just dive right in there. But like, I remember living in Manhattan during 9-11 was this terrifying event. And you saw it from, you know, front, the front row. But what really hurt was seeing how the fear lever was utilized for other purposes rather than just healing or whatever the things needed to happen beyond the, just the, the sort of the basic payback factor. I mean, if someone comes and gets you, you want to punch him back, but it, it, it's tough. And I think that was a big, sort of a big revelation. And then it's a constant and I, who knows when it started. I, I think I think it owes a lot to the, the the transposition of media into a, into a form of solely of entertainment. Everything is seen through the scrim right. of enjoyment. That that the you know that, that you you're you you must take pleasure in whatever you do, and that that the fear lever you talk about um, is is simply an extension of the 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 theme park ride experience you know that that mm -hmm. idea that everyone has to have a heightened level of of reaction yeah I mean, i'm i mean i grew up assuming that i would wake up every day uh, a pile of glowing ash right uh, as a result of a nuclear strike from our from, from our enemies overseas and um i don't remain I'm, i remain utterly undisappointed about not having survived that I mean, <laughs> sure. i'm good you know i mean i'm good but um, I was, I, I live, I, when 9-11 when happened, I was living in, in, in the San Fernando Valley in Sherman Oaks in California. I live in a small town about an hour and a half north of Los Angeles now. I live in a really isolated beach community where no one has any idea what I do for a living, and it's really good. Um, and I drove down Ventura Boulevard uh, a couple of days after, after the experience, and the streets were packed with people um, waving flags and making noisemakers. And I turned to my wife who has a, an obsessive commitment to not giving a shit what anybody else is doing or thinking. Right. I and I said, uh, this is not going to end well. Um, yeah. I have a, you know, I, I come from a, a very left-wing family. I'm a red diaper baby. And in that context, we were, we considered ourselves very patriotic Americans. You know, we were, mm -hmm. we were flag, on flags and things like that. And we identified our patriotism as being filtered through the city of our own politics. Um, which was a perfectly acceptable way to function in those days. It isn't anymore. Yeah. Um, the 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 narrative of patriotism has been absconded 
and absorbed by a an, a a part of the culture that that stumbling stumbled into grabbing it as as my my generation handed it over like shitheads. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the, the day that I saw my first flag burning was the day that I moved. I left the, the anti-war movement. Okay, because I recognized that I was dealing with nihilism as opposed to patriotism. Sure. This is not, this is not the kind of conversation we're used to having on comic book things, you know. <laughs> but here's the but the thing is to me that it's you know, listen, comic books are media, you know, they're medium just like you know, novels are, they're the medium just like film is, whatever you choose to make your your mark and your story, everything frames that for you. What you're talking about and your feelings, you know, growing up under you know, the threat of nuclear annihilation or any of that type frames your point of view in how you, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, you know, tying it back into comics. And I was, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day after we arranged this and we were talking how, like how influential your stories were to, to us as, you know, young would be comic book creators in the eighties. And I, I mean, it's so funny, like, so like American flag being sort of like this sort of apex sort of like, ex, you know, experience for me. I mean, when you chose to use the word plex as your sort of like <laughs> governing word for many things like, oh, it's the whatever plex, the whatever plex, the thing plex. And I was like, wow, that's so u- interesting. But then that word crept into the lexicon as as the years move forward and i'm like oh like he was you know you were being forward thinking in that respect and it opened up the door for me like in the concept of like you know the the impact of language and commentary on authority and social movements in the works that you were doing it, it because i read your stuff at a higher frequency than i would read a book from a novelist it just that's how, just how, how, how old how old how old fi- are you i'm 55 now okay, okay. yeah just getting into what where you are you know physically emotionally and intellectually at the time you know right yeah i mean i was a, i was a young teenager you were right <laughs> i was i was i was right my head was really soft and it was easy to poke into um so it's but that kind of thing like it really framed this sort of ability to take story and create commentary while still entertaining but not truly being preachy do you know what i mean like you're 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 not up there like bono's you know yelling something to the audience where people it's it could be divisive versus bringing people along i i live in a state of constant doubt um the uh, uh, that self-doubt is what has sustained me through my entire career and I will say right now that the first 10 years of that career, that, that self-doubt was utterly justified. <laughs> um, but, but as I, as I developed craft to serve the craft, um, my confidence grew, but I remain a, a cautious editor of, of my own sensibilities and my own, my own enthusiasm and my, my own, my own interests. And the, the idea of, of pre- presenting a point of view without being preachy is the, the, the absolute apogee of what I'm seeking in my life. Um, mm-hmm. I, when I did flag back in the, in the early 80s, um, 
I'd not been in touch with Gil Kane for some time. And Gil called me out of the blue, having read the first two issues, and was incredibly flattering. And, and of course, you know, it's like hearing good things from your dad. Yeah. Um, and uh, and what, what he point what, what he what he specifically said was, this book has a point of view that is is it's just it it's it sets its own tone and stays it can stays with it consistently. And that was for me. I'm either having flies or floaters. I can't quite tell. Um, <laughs> the, um, it's been my, my, my mantra since then, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I have, I have an aversion to unsolicited advice. And right. because I believe unsolicited advice is simply criticism bearding itself in the, with, under the, under the mask of good intentions. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, 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 in turn do not offer, a portfolio of suggestions. It's just not my world. I, I lay out how I'm feeling about things, how I think about things, and then take it from there. Um, I don't in any way encourage people to think or believe as I do, because my, my own personal experience dictates how I believe and how I think. But I, will, I am willing to tell people how I'm thinking, how I'm feeling. Right. And and, and, and if, if, if there are those who agree, I'm good. If they don't, fuck you. I don't, I don't really care. <laughs> Right. Um, I, I, I learned a long time ago that whatever other people think of me is none of my business and that my self-esteem is based in no way on what other people feel about my work or how, how other people react to my, what I say. I hold grudges when people come at me because I hold a grudge like a, like a bloodstain on silk. Um, but, but I, and I have to, and forgiveness has to be earned because I'm a, I'm a grudge holding son of a bitch. But by the same token, um, I make it a point to avoid reading anything about me, positive or negative, right. simply because I, I, I'm, easy, I'm not that easily flattered and my feelings are easily hurt. So what the fuck? What do I gain? You know yeah, I mean? no, th- I mean, because it, it is, I mean, it's a trap. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't even know if it's an easy, easily flattered thing for me. I don't ever trust the honesty of it. I go, oh, yeah, you're just being kind or whatever the thing is. And it's very hard for me to even take it, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, that, 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 that's exactly right. I mean, um, I mean, the situation I'm involved right now, the, the reason I'm here, you know, yeah. discussing the Fargo project um, is, is it, it's, it's a, it's a landmine. It's a, a minefield for me because I've, I've, uh, you know, Mike has said is Mike is just hanging out, enjoying and watching the conversation. Um, I'm, I've been studiously and conspicuously avoiding the crowdfunding world for mm-hmm. years. Uh, well, many of my colleagues have profited from it. And um, I was seduced into this, and I and, I, and again I roll. I, it, it wasn't like I had to be direct kicking and screaming. I I, I like the project. Um, it's an opportunity to do something. I I I used to remember when Gray and Green used to always uh, talk about his entertainments and his serious works. Fuck that shit. That's nonsense. You know, you you bring, I bring. Fuck you. I bring the same level of of effect and enthusiasm and effort. To everything I do, whether mm-hmm. I'm doing it for a, a super duper book for Marvel or DC, which is a rare occurrence, uh, or I'm doing work for Image or someplace else. I mean, the work is the work. You have to do yeah. the same level of commitment and craft, because if you don't, you're cheating yourself and you're cheating the audience. So the opportunity to do something along these lines just gives me an opportunity to write and draw a, a period piece in a period that I really love. Um, and you know, it, it, it does not have 
the political underpinnings of flag or the social underpinnings of Times Squared or, frankly, the pornographic filth of Black Kiss. Mm -hmm. But what it does have is a, a, a series of visuals that lend themselves to, to, to graphics that I really enjoy, enjoy creating in tandem with a, a direct linear story that is a pleasure to transcribe. I mean, I'm, I've taken a 186-page book and turned it into a 96-page graphic novel, a phrase I love. It's a big, fat comic book, kids. <laughs> Let's call it. You know, graphic, graphic novelists are people who wake up one morning and decide that comics is a new métier. And I, yes. It's my métier since I was, you know, old enough to, you know, to read. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, I, 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 I've labored for this. So, you know, I, my feeling is you're, you're, my responsibility to the work is to to bring the same reflective effort uh, to everything I do. It's it's irrelevant who I'm doing it for. Mm -hmm. You know that's just the way it is. And and yeah. that and that all dates back to American Flag. Was before American Flag, I was a a, a a sort of like a Jew wandering in the desert. I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. Um, I stumbled into working for Byron Price, where I learned some craft. But Byron was just you know. An, an impossible person to work with him for. I did it twice, which demonstrates a really, you know, a, a fool's judgment. Um, that's, but, that's maybe it's me, not them philosophy at first. <laughs> you know, when you're young, you're like, well, maybe I'm the one who made the mistake here. I, I it was, it was my mistake to do it. I mean, it really mm -hmm. was. I mean, I, I mean, no one ever profited working for Byron Price except for Byron Price. And, um, and, and again, if you want confirmation of this, there any number, there's a list of people I can give you. You could, oh yeah, Jacob's right. He knows he's right. Yeah. Um, but flag came at the nexus of a series of, of, of emotional and spiritual and physical and, and technical development on my part. I, I, I left comic books after a skimming fight I had with Jim Shooter and, uh, went off and did something else for a living for a couple of years. And in that time I developed a, a, a humbled interest in craft and a respect for craft. And for reasons which I remain completely mystified by, and I still have never gotten an actual answer as to why this happened. First Comics felt they could trust me with the kind of money they made and offered to me. And I just like, why? You know, I remember sitting with my then wife and saying, what is behind this choice? Where are they right. getting this? I mean, I have no idea. But it changed my life. It really did. It transformed me. But it also taught me, it taught me a very valuable lesson, which is that the the definition of, from my perspective of good has very little bearing on what the mainstream comic book audience identifies as good it's a it's it, it's it's a vast it's separated by a chasm mm -hmm. and a lot of it has to do with the fact that i wasn't good enough to do what was demanded of me in a commercial sense in the early 1970s. So I had to find other avenues to keep myself busy. And finding those other avenues led me away from what it was that had drawn me to comic books in the first place. And by the time I got good enough to do it, the good enoughness had ceased to have any particular value to me in service to that sort of material. That's a roundabout way of saying that when I do a superhero story, I'm a perfectly journeyman artist on that superhero story, mm -hmm. but I'm much more interested in what's happening between between the, the punch outs than I am in the punching. Yeah.
um, and, and considering the fact that I was, you know, I'm, that my, my, my primary mentor was Gil Kane, there's something curious about that. Because sure. Gil's work is, is defined He's great by punch out. The Corey, the Corey, the, I mean, he, he was the one who introduced the ballet and the Agnes DeMille idea, the comic book fight scenes. You know, I yeah. described Jack's work, I described Jack Kirby's work recently as gymnastic hysteria. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and, and it is, but Gil's work was that gymnastic hysteria as channeled and filtered through the, the dogma of, of Bernd Hogarth, who was, but um, dominated Gil for his thinking. And for me, um, I, I learned everything I know about what I do for a living from watching Gil, but I don't draw anything like Gil. I don't think mm -hmm. like Gil. I don't have that sensibility. My, my thinking has more in common with, say, Wallace Wood or Alex Toth or John Severin. Those are the three artists that I look at almost on a daily basis. And those, those three ethi, ethoses ethos, <laughs> uh, inform a lot of what I'm doing on Fargo. Um, the, I've, I've oddly enough gone back to a lot of the Kurtzman stuff because there's a lot of methodical narrative built into this book that calls for the kind of word counting and panel counting that Kurtzman did. Right. And I'm of the that there are three schools of storytelling in comics. There's, there's, there's Eisner, who, whose great genius was to transliterate the physical space of the Sunday page of the comic strip and transliterate it to the comic book page to create a different aspect ratio. And everybody was doing Eisner, including Jack. You know, everybody was doing Eisner. Right. Um, spirit, just everything. I mean, the, when I was a Golden Age collector, I never really identified that the quality books were the books to be collecting because those were really good books as opposed to DC, which were kind of shitty and timely, which was just terrible. Marvel stuff was off. But in retrospect, I realized that the that Eisner had a, had a crew of guys from Lou Fine, Mac Rayboy, um, you know, J Jack Cole, Alex Kotsky, all of whom went on to just great stuff and did great stuff for him. And then Kurtzman comes along and changes everything. Kurtzman introduces a an emotional detachment that steps away from the jitterbug and and moves into this sort of measured and reserved consideration mm -hmm. of ideas. And then Jack and, Steve, and, Lee, and and Stan come along. And what happens with, you know, Jack was doing Eisner. Jack was doing all this brilliant athletic stuff. I mean, I, remember, I, mean, I was a huge fan of the, of the Fly, the, the Archie book. You know, the oh, wide yeah, angles, sure. you know. That, that, and there was some there's a grotesqueness about that. I really don't. And, but when, when Stan starts making demands of Jack, Jack seems to lose much of that athleticism and replaces it with impact. And... Right. And for me, um, the Eisner stuff remains more interesting and the Kurtzman stuff remains more interesting. Um, I, I don't have a, my stuff doesn't have about a, have, have the sense of bludgeon. Um, when, when I, when I draw a punch thrown, I always feel like I'm, I'm, I'm operating in, in a realm that, that is, uh, uncharted territory for me. I just don't have that, that skill set. A lot of it is I'm a physical coward. So I tend to, I tend to run away from fights as soon as I bust. <laughs> so, so no, so no actual street practice of this, this, uh, uh yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been beaten up too often to really engage with the idea. So you're really good at drawing yeah. someone taking a punch. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, I mean, I mean, it's indication of what, the fact that nobody's reading Hey Kids comics is that I have not had the shit kicked out of me yet. You know, uh, I'm overdue. <laughs> I really am. 
<laughs> that's well, it's you know it's interesting i really i love the i i'm, I'm a big f- thinker about the tree you know the comics tree you know and you you know you slide it down to you know to will and jack and harvey and i think harvey but like there's a metronomic quality to harvey's storytelling exactly i wish you i I will steal that from you right now yeah yeah no please um and you know and it's it's so unique and i love trying to filter like where people come from within these trees you know, and I, I, I almost like where does Toth pop in from that one? Like, does he, does he spin off of, you know, Will? Like, is there's this sort of like, because it, it's not as sort of dramatic as Will typically was with his work. Um, I don't, I don't think Alex is influenced by comic book artists. I think he comes yeah. directly from Kniff and, and Sickles, um, and, and 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 also the application of industrial design. Um, yeah. There's, yeah. Sure. There's a there's a geometric quality to his work, particularly, you know, you know, talk about Alex. Alex becomes Alex in the early 1950s. You know, he's 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 this phenomenal talent as a kid, but it's still unformed. And over the the run of Sierra Smith, by the end of Sierra Smith, the backup feature in Dale Evans comics, he becomes becomes himself. And then there's the Battle Flag of the Foreign Legion and Thunderjet. All of a sudden, he is right. You know, and that, then he goes on and he, and, and he does that, that phenomenal run of John Fury, you know, on a rexograph machine, on a rexograph machine, <laughs> same size. I mean, what? How does that? How do you do that? So, well, okay, so I, that's, you know, he, he that, was that's the, yeah, sorry. Yeah, there's a technical there's a so you bring up a technical aspect in that and I can tie, I tie this back into you because there are, you know, there's artists who look at the medium with the technical eye, like how, what, what technology can I employ to improve what's happening on the page? <clears throat> so Jim Starenko, for example, or Alex Toth, like, how are they doing these? Like, Oh, I, you know, I don't know why we're not using this technology. It's sitting there. The printers use it. Why can't we, you know, magazines user, whomever uses it, we should use it too. So then you get the color holds starting what the late seventies when people started, you know, doing red line to do color holds, which, you know, but then like for, you know, for my dollar, I recognize a sense of graphic design, even before I probably knew what it was coming out of your work, you know, the, the choice of typography and structure onto the page. So was that a cognizant choice for you? Absolutely. I mean, I, uh, I love, I mean, I'm, I'm a mathematical moron. I mean, I, I mean, my, my, my college boards, I have 800 English boards, perfect score, hmm. not a single wrong and 400 math boards, which means I am mentally retarded in regard to math. Okay. You're, you're that, a coin flip. <laughs> that said, um, my work is based almost exclusively on geometry. Okay. And, and uh, it's the, the application of design came out of those couple of years that I was away doing other things for a living. And the problems I was solving for a living were to create a, a a saleable standout image that would present itself in a four inch by four inch space. Hmm. The, and and again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I have no gut. Uh, I am all cerebral. I'm all problem solving, solutions to problems. I do crossword puzzles every night because reading gets me worked up, and crossword puzzles settle me down. Okay. And 
the the application of graphic design flag came out of the six months that preceded actually doing the book because the deal was made six months before I actually started writing and drawing the book that I did academic study. I literally looked at stuff. How do I sell this idea? What do I do to make this idea work? And I was looking at everything from uh, Lith Opinion Magazine, which was the magazine of the Amalgamated Lithographers Union, long, long gone. I have a complete set right over there. And um, it, you know, it, it had features that, you know, Al Parker redesigns the American magazine. It's pretty astonishing. It's the best reproduced magazine you'll ever see in your life. Yeah. You know, looking at Otnes and stuff, Otnes was doing work with xerography, having been a, you know, a Robert Fawcett type artist and a Noel Sickles type artist for years was evolving into using xerography and photography and, and, and montage, um, looking at Bob Peake's stuff and looking at Richard Saul Werman's stuff. Uh, I still haven't broken that code. Werman was a, was a cartographer and designer. Um, wow. Okay. The, you know his work? No, but I'm going to look it up. He, he did a series of, 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 of uh, books on tour guides. He, he, re, he attempted to reinvent a tour guide. Those, those, those oblong books people used to carry before, before cell phones and, and mm -hmm. all that stuff. And what he would do is he would do exploded imagery of, 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 of uh, tourist visiting sites. He ended up doing this for hockey, baseball, and football as well. For people who didn't, I mean, I know nothing about sports. So th these were perfect for me to get to explain and understand the game. And his thinking was so out there and just so abstract that to this day, I still am trying to figure out a way to incorporate what he was doing in those books into my stuff. Mm -hmm. um, some years back, um, I got a call from Joey Cavalieri at DC. Joey's one of my favorite editors in comics. He's one of my favorite people and he's a really good editor. And he was doing a, a Western book that needed backup features. And I, um, he asked me if I do a couple. And I wrote two. One of them I was going to draw. And one of them was going to be drawn by Jose Garcia Lopez. I delivered the material. And the, the, one, the one that Garcia was going to draw, he paid for and then said he couldn't do. Oh, no. Um, he wouldn't do it because he said the audience wouldn't get it. And I, I, I got it back. And I, I, I sold it to Dark Horse. And I offered it to Walter to draw. And Walter refused to draw because it, it wasn't comics. Okay. And I didn't want know what that meant. I ended up drawing it myself. And what it was, was it was a pastiche of a job that John Severin did for Two-Fisted Tales um, about a visitor from an alternate, alternate universe um, in which Lincoln didn't die and all, all this other stuff. Okay. And the piece was called George Armstrong Custer, The Later Years. And it was, it was basically about, about Custer winning the Battle of the Little Bighorn using uh, the, uh, the Beaufort gun and the Gatling gun and becoming mm -hmm. a spokesperson for the Gatling gun, and ultimately becoming the president of the United States and invading Canada. And because um, we should have invaded Canada years ago when there were only 32 people there, we could have had a lot more states, many more states. <laughs> um, and... I mean, it, 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 it was met with crickets because, you know, it wasn't about it. You know, it wasn't about super monster, dragon, space, mutant power shit coming out of their faces, coming out of them. So um, I, I recognize the fact that my definition of what comics is, is far more varied and, and open than it is for many.
you know, I mean, I identified years ago that, that, that to a great extent, the genius of Jim Steranko was to conflate Jack Kirby's, as I said, gymnastic hysteria with the chilly detachment of Bernard, of Bernard Krigstein mm. and, the, and the jobs. That's like, that's pretty fucking brilliant. You know, I, you know that, that's not a connection I could have ever made. Um, and I try to explain to people, when people talk about being influenced by Alex Toth, being influenced by Alex Toth is not like drawing like Alex Toth. Right, it's sure. The way Alex Toth thinks. And, and that thinking is what interests me the most. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure out ways to, to imply the presence, the existence of time in a static, non-plastic medium. And that's what comics is all about. Comics yeah. for me is about it's the representation of time through space. And it's, it's you know, I mean, I, I was talking to somebody yesterday about the, the reason we opted for this particular volume of the Fargo series, the saga, uh, it's called Hell on Wheels and it's, it, it involves a lot of trains and stuff. And trains immediately leapt out at me as a graphic idea that lends itself to the horizontal nature and the vertical nature of comics. Mm. There's an artist named Charles Sheeler, um, who was a photographer and artist um, of the 1930s and 40s. I think he's, he worked into the 50s. Um, who photographed machinery and, in, and industrial objects and painted them as well and, and found the abstract graphic nature of industrial design. And his work just staggers me. Uh, I've used it a lot. I used it a lot in Flag, a great deal. I used it in, uh, in Times Squared, although Times Squared harks back to more of um, the machine age, the, um, that, 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 that quasi-American deco. Because mm -hmm. deco is... We call, call Art Deco is actually machine age American art. Art Deco is much more fragile and French. Um, um, we identify in the States as, as Art Deco, as, as machine age American design, um, with, with the introduction of, of, of new tooling that, that was able to create curvilinear shape. My wife and I were in New York in September, and we one of our pit stops is always the, the Museum of Modern Art Shop. We love the MoMA store. It's uh, great. Because it's bad design and stuff. And across the street is the, is the Rockefeller house. And I'm crazy about the Rockefeller house. Yeah. It makes me, nuts. I love that building so much. And, and my, my wife doesn't quite understand why I said, it's those curvilinear windows, babe. It's like, yeah, that's what it's all about. It's like, these, these, these bubbling windows. It's just, it's just breathtakingly beautiful. And um, I mean, I left New York 38 years ago, the day before I turned 35. And I remain a New Yorker on permanent leave. Like I say, I live in a, in a small beach town. I look like a hobo. And uh, I do. It's not irony. It's deadly true. Strad, Strad can confirm this. I look like a hobo. Uh, I'm having lunch with him later today. He will, he will again be able to confirm this for you as well. And when I'm, when I'm in New York City now, it's as a tourist, which is really wonderful. You know, mm -hmm. the New York I left behind is no, no longer exists. You know, it's gone through Bloomberg and it's gone through Giuliani and it's gone through all these other 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 Gavones who who twisted it to their own devices. And I I recognize the fact that so much of the way I draw and think derives from growing up as a child in a world that looked like Ouija's photographs. Because New York 
didn't didn't really change from the late 1930s until the mid 1950s. The first the first accession to modernity in New York City was the building of Lever House on 54th and Park, and that that building just changed the way that it, that neighborhood was lit. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the light that was reflected. I mean, New York City now has a a cool bluish tinted light, which was the antithesis of what the light was like when I was a child. Because in those days, it was bounced off of red brick. And the light light in New York was much warmer. And not different, just not better, not worse, just different. Mm-hmm. And my kids were living down in Greenwich Village for quite some time. They lived in something called the, the uh, um, something with the center. It, was a, it, had, it had been a, um, a, a, a transfer point for Im- immigration. And... When I went down to visit them in the village, it was like, holy shit, what happened here? Those ramshackle five-story buildings are gone, replaced by these yuppie scum high-rises, you know? And it just, it could freak me out, you know? I just, it really did, um, because I spent my boyhood down there. But, you know, I, I, I've said more than once, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling here, but this is all about the city, and, and so much of my work is defined by the urban life. Um, when I read Jim Thompson's stuff, in my head, it always looked like Alex Toad, I'm sorry, Wallace Wood's urban nightmare stuff that he did for crime suspense and shock suspense. Mm-hmm. Uh, that yeah. those, slightly, those slightly about to collapse tenement buildings and just, I love that stuff. I mean, and that, that I suspect was a reflection of Woody moving from, from, from the Midwest, you know, this, this white guy from Minnesota uh, moving to Brooklyn and Manhattan and being confronted with the, the, the film noir of his of, of his own experience. I mean, sure. Yeah. I love that. How's that for a ramble? Nice. Wow. It's, it's, it, it challenges some of the best. But like speaking of like of that, you know, of noir, you know, I mean, like a lot of your, you know, a lot of your works would be sort of classified within the either a, a noir theme or a pulp theme. And then I kind of feel like you went into a more of a science fiction so you could sort of tackle greater themes. And then you went into more of a speculative fiction where you could then take the earlier, you know, pulp or, you know, pulp themes and then apply something to it with an alternate kind of point of view. And is that kind of where is that where you kind of put your attention to in Fargo or are you diving back into your sort of your pulp love? Well, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I, people think I'm a pulp guy and I'm not really a pulp person. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I never, I could never get through a lot, any, any more than, the, than a couple of shadows to just to get a sense of this stuff. Doc Savage bored the shit out of me and all that stuff. But I was a real reader of the original paperback stuff. I mean, I mean, if, if by pulp, you mean Richard Starks, Parker and Grofeld novels. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 If I hope you mean James Bond, yeah, you know mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the the Fargo stuff, you know, existed at a time when I was reading this sort of material, but it was below my radar because I wasn't reading westerns, and the books were sold as westerns. They are not westerns in any traditional sense. Um, if you accept, as I do, that the American western is a is a narrative that starts around 1868 as the veterans of the Civil War are moving west, and ends around in in the mid 1890s. When, when the, the railroad fortunes that were accrued from financing the, the, the victory of the, of the Union against the Confederacy have, have begun the process of milling the 20th century. 
Uh, Fargo is that guy who is a 19th century guy in rampant in the early 20th century. I'm of the mind that that fortune, those railroad fortunes, which financed the 20th century, had the modern world in place by 1910. You know, you had automobiles, you had airplanes, uh, you had modern building techniques, you had the beginning of, of the urbanization, the shift from an agricultural society to an urban society. And most specifically, you had communication. I mean, let's not forget David Sarnoff built his career, you know, and, and, and built RCA and NBC on the basis of having stood on a, on a, on a ledge in a building in 1912 doing live broadcast uh, of, of the, the Morse code terror coming out of the sinking of the Titanic. Mm. And that, that world, that, that, that universe is so appealing to me that, 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 that world that we, we think about as a, an alien landscape, but is when our world was built and forged. And Fargo, I described Fargo as what Conan would have been like had he ridden with with with, with Pike Bishop and Dutch in the Wild Bunch. Um, <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, I mean the the specifics the specifics of the character the novels have a profoundly ritualistic sense. You know, I mean, think about Nero Wolf. If you've read the Nero Wolf novels, the Nero Wolf novels are extremely ritualistic. You know, he has Archie. Archie's the narrator. The novels take place in a certain, it's, it's near Wolf of West 37th Street. Fritz is upstairs, you know, and, and Francis, I mean, just, it's, it's there. It's all there. Mm -hmm. And these novels have that same ritualistic perspective because Fargo, um, I could not diverge for one of the elements of Fargo. I mean, I, I hate drawing revolvers. I like drawing automatics. Uh, don't tell people that it's all here. Um, Fargo is, is armed with a, with a 38 revolver. And um, one of the best images I've ever seen in any in any film is that shot of of Hen of of of, of uh, William Holden, a bracelet on over a water cooled machine gun, waving a, a 1911 45 uh, as they take on Mapache to, to revenge to avenge uh, Angel's death. But I, I accrue to the material and the the ritualistic nature of the novels. The, the Helen Wills is number fifteen in, in a series of twenty. And one of the reasons I can do that is that there is no, there's no continuity from novel to novel. The, the, the character is pretty much the same in each book. It's pretty much like James Bond. Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing, nothing that happened in From Marshall with Love has any impact on, uh, on Thunderball. And the same is true here. And the, one, one of the pleasures I took in the, in the novel, in, do, in doing the graphic novel, was to visualize the ritual of his weapons. That he, he's literally cataloging the guns and the knives. And uh, everything gets played out that way. And um, the character is, again, uh, Benteen took the character that Lee Marvin was playing in The Professionals, Richard Brooks's picture, yeah. and gave him a backstory and a career. The, the character in the, in, the, in the film is called Fardon. Uh, Benteen uh, took this character and gave him a backstory. He's got a great backstory. The character is, he was the, the or, he was orphaned by a Comanche raid and taken in by a farm couple who saw him as labor and stock and he, they worked him to the bone. He ran away and ends up as a circus roustabout, a, a, a body, a, a bouncer in a brothel, a, a prize fighter, cow puncher, and ultimately ends up serving under Roosevelt in the, um, in the Rough Riders. And I mean, I, I, I'm a huge TR guy. I mean, I, mm. 
I loved Empire, um, one of Gore Vidal's counter histories. And uh, that, 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 that figures prominently, you know, it, it deals directly with TR. He's got, Vidal had no use for Teddy Roosevelt. I have a great deal of use for Teddy Roosevelt. And the, in the fact that Tom Mix claimed to ride with the Rough Riders, I'd love to know if that were true. And I've used the Rough Riders as a, me- as a metaphor for experience in any number of jobs. And it was, an, it was terrific to find out that he was a guy who did. And Teddy figures prominently as, as one of the, the story points, one of the plot points in Hell on Wheels. And one of those weapons I mentioned earlier uh, was a gift from TR. Uh, it's a, 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 a fouling piece, as they say in England, which, you know, Fargo knocked the stock off and, and cut off to a foot of the barrel and now has a mm-hmm. sort of shot that is a, a perennial, you know, deadly part of his arsenal. And the professionals and, wild, and the wild bunch for me um, are, are the two great transitional Westerns. Um, and their, their take on the vanishing landscape that these guys had populated and how, and how these guys were dealing with, 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 with a present that, that was not welcoming to their sensibilities is really appealing to me. Yeah. And, um, and Fargo is not a guy who is particularly afflicted with self-doubt. So he's a guy who is functioning just fine in, the, in, in terms of the standards of, of the 20th century. One of the novels begins with him serving as a stuntman and consultant in an early Hollywood film. And we 86 that as, as our first, first book out, out front, just because it felt like a, a note that would step that that would make an exception of that material, and that that the hell on wheels, as it is on, as fifteen in in, in twenty, um, has more of a a generalized appeal that it could inter- it introduces the character in media res. Um, page one of the book, he's just right there, and the character delivers who he is through action mm. and yeah. the and and that and that that for me is what it's about i mean um there's there are more than than than, than usual silent sequences in this book simply because i opted not to do descriptive captions i didn't think they were necessary one of the one of the pleasures of of writing and drawing this stuff at one point together with one hand is that I can de- deliver images and pay and, and, and pet panels of, that are endowed with narrative value. And it's always been my experience with, with very few exceptions. When writers write books for me to draw, I collaborate, they tend to write at me hmm. as, opposed to, as opposed to for me. And there are only a couple of exceptions who, who don't, don't fall into that trap. Uh, I'm, my job as a comic book artist is not as an illustrator, but as a graphic designer in the service of narrative. And the, the job I see is to transliterate a, narr- a, vis- a, a literary idea in, in, into its visual equivalent. And one of the things that came from doing this, this adaptation, this, taking 186 pages and turning it into 96 pages of graphic novel, again, ugh, graphic novel. <laughs> Um, was that 
there's an enormous amount of stuff that that is described and redescribed and over-described, as there is in all in all all, the, all all adventure fiction, that call for one image, and there's a sequence in the book that doesn't exist for any particular reason other than to talk about a piece of contemporary technology. And I thought about cutting the sequence entirely until I realized that it gave me an opportunity to tell backstory through narrative, not descriptive captions, right. but narrative captions as we were looking at something that was not directly related to the narrative being told. And that was a key. I mean, again, the, you know, you talk earlier about, about, about technology, I think technique. And um, the idea of counter-narrative really appeals to me. Um, the idea of, of telling a, a, an episodic disjointed fable, but with o o overlapping narratives. And um, Fargo is more straightforward than... I, I would compare Fargo as, as in, in its straightforward nature to, to what I did to Mark Mann and Midnight of the Soul both of which are, are, are noir-esque crime pieces. Um, but there are also some experimental moments of graphics where I incorporate um, a lot of, of Kurtzman technique. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, there's, there's gunplay in the, in, the, in, in the book that I felt required a, that metronomic effect that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a really solid way of, of, of depicting this, this, these particular confrontations. So. Okay. That, that, that's really actually super clarifying. The, <clears throat> you said something about the, the, um, the wild bunch and um, the professionals. I also think of like the misfits, like of, of films of the time that sort of, you know, change our mind mindset about something. Um, I, the Misfits is a movie that people love that I'm not fond of. Yeah. Um, uh, for me, um, my wife has had never seen anything. She, she grew up like a Mormon. I have no idea where she was coming from. She never, no rock and roll, no movies, no TV or nothing, you know, just, so during the lockdown, the pandemic lockdown, I, 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 I curated a, uh, a subjective film festival. Mm -hmm. Showed her a ton of when I tell you the things that she saw for the first time, you'll think I'm being hyperbolic, but I'm quite literally serious. I mean, um, Casablanca, The Maltese Falcon, Citizen Kane, The Avengers of Robin Hood, all you know. And one of the things about Clark Gable is that I showed her it happened one night. Okay. She'd seen Gunman and she loved it happened one night. I mean, just like, let's see more. And I and I and I started looking and I realized I actually approached Mike about this, as a matter of fact. Um Gable was a movie star who didn't do a lot of good movies. <laughs> like Errol Flynn. Sure, sure, I get you. You know, whereas Jimmy Stewart, Henry Fonda. Yeah. Gary, you know, these guys did shitloads of great stuff. Okay. And I tried to watch The Misfits, which I'd not, I'd not seen, you know, in, in many, many years. And I found it doer and phony at the same time. Um... And I'm not, I'm not a Miller guy. I really am not. I, right. uh, I've been back and forth with a pal of mine who was, it was at a noir festival in DC right now. And they were showing all my sons and um, I've never seen the film version. I've seen a stage production, but I just, I find Miller so 
<sighs> just exhaustingly self-serious. Right. You know, there's this, you know, it's just this suicide poet handed the back of the forehead. Oh, please, you know, shut up, you know, enough with you already. Um, and, and I just, I didn't warm to the picture. I, I like Montgomery Clift. Um, and I like Marilyn Monroe in small doses. Um, but for me, if I'm going to watch a Western with Clift, it's going to be Red River. You know, I mean, there okay. you go. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. That's I mean, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I'll probably have to give it a rewatch. I've, I've been doing this. Um, you know, I mean, you remember like in the you know in the seventies, how like Channel Nine, Channel Five, and Channel Eleven like would have all these movies on on the weekends. And Nine had RKO. Channel Five had 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 the W the the Warner Brothers franchise, mm-hmm. and and Eleven had all the independent weird shit. You know they were on every Saturday and Sunday, like in the afternoons. And, you know, they were many were inappropriate, you know, for the age of the people viewing. I'm like, I remember sitting down, you know, and this is, you know, mid mid seventies and, you know, three days of the condor comes on and I'm like, okay, I, I, I like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kids. So I'm going to like this. So I sit down and then I'm absolutely like just punched in the solar plexus, you know, the, the second the mailman comes in, but all in a good way, but man, these films just laid some heavy stuff down on you. So like, that's when I engaged the misfits as a, as a nine-year-old kid. So I'm like, seeing- your parents <laughs> Well, they they were divorced many years before and not paying attention to me. Well, that, welcome to my world. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I've told the story any number of times that uh, I had I had German measles at my bar mitzvah. They affected thirty people. Um, yeah, America. And uh, so I spent the following the week after my bar mitzvah at home in bed, kind of hallucinating in fever, and was watching Channel Five, which had all the all the the Warner Brothers product. And it was a week where they were showing the second cycle of gangster pictures from the 30s and early 40s. They used the same cast, the same sets um, to do comedies. <laughs> Brother Orchid, a Slight Case of Murder, All Through the Night, City of Con- City for Conquest. And I realized I'm, I'm watching Alan Jenkins and, 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 and J. Edward Brophy, two Warner's contract players, and Frank McHugh and all these cats. And I realized, holy fuck, everybody in the movies who's supposed to be stupid sounds like me. And I made a concerted effort at that point to develop this mid-Atlantic accent that was separate and distinct from the from the Bowery because I sounded like Leo Gorsi from the Bowery. Yeah, Gorsi. okay. And and I taught myself not to, you know. And I mean, I'm, I'm I'm a product of Brooklyn and Queens as a kid, you know. And and of course, it was a terrible mistake on my part because to go at Joe Papp always said that the guys who built the the atomic bomb that ended the Second World War. Uh, all graduated from the same class at MIT, who in turn had come from the Bronx High School of Science in Boys High. So the Second World War was won by guys whose accents sounded like Leo Gorsi and Hunts Hall from the Bowery Boys, which I thought was fantastic. You know, I mean, it really was. That's hilarious. But like thinking, but thinking about like all those cinematic influences or stage influences or whatever they are, you know, as we kind of grow up. You know, we, we, I don't know how the way we internalize them at a younger age is different than we, you know, when we re, re-examine them. But like, it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier and the idea of like breaking the code, like how important that, like, I always called it like a forensic approach to something. Like I would look, I like, there are very few 
you know, visual creators that I can't sort of forensically break down how they did they got to the solution. And then the ones who I can't absolutely just go it was ABCDEF. I I'm I I love them forever because there's a mass there's a magic in their application of technique which you go this is it. This is the this is the thing. We we are brothers here. I mean that 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 I couldn't have put it. I mean I was I remember very specifically I was at Upstart. I was working on the, the the second or third issue of American Flag, and I was looking at a a bunch of Robert Fawcett tear sheets. And all of a sudden, the pictures themselves began to separate into layers of meaning. Mm-hmm. And I called Walter. Walter's on the other side of the side of the room. I said, "You know, you got to look at this." And we sat for an hour looking at Fawcett tear sheets. And from an analytical perspective, and I, and at that point, I'd come to understand why he laid things out the way he did, how he organized space, and why his drawing was the way it was. You talk about that kind of magic. Um, that's how I feel about Dave Johnson's covers. Oh, sure. Uh, Dave, Dave is one of the most extraordinary thinkers I've ever known. Um, he hears me say this. I think he, he, I mean, I know he knows I mean it. But, you know, I don't flatter other people a lot. And I, but I'm, I remain in awe of Dave's work. Yeah. Uh, Dave and I both, both just uh, re- received an assignment to do variant covers for a book. And, um, and the book was terrible. I mean, it was just, it was, it, it, the book looked like, it, it looked like it was drawn by someone who'd read, who heard about comic books once. Very well drawn, but no pictures, no narrative structure, no, there was nothing happening. And it was, and it was very deconstructed. It just was languid and lumbering. And I submitted, two or three cover ideas. They rejected them all. They kept coming back with editorial suggestions. And Dave submitted something before he submitted. He said, you can use this if you want. I said, no, that, that, that's an archetypal Dave Johnson idea. I could not do that. It's not how I think. And he, of course, got the, they, they approved his layout immediately. It's, it's gorgeous. It's fabulous. Right. It's nothing I could ever accomplish in any way. Um, and his work just astonishes me. It staggers the fuck out of me. Well, I, um, I- I'll give you a little Dave. So Dave and I were, we were uh, roommates and studio mates for a while. And we just, we had that sort of that immediate connection to our early loves of create, you know, creations. And so we were just like, Oh, we're, you know, immediate buddies. And my description of Dave is he is, he is so capable in so many facets that when he said, comes out saying, Oh, like I wanted to try X painting, whatever the thing is, he comes out of it as if he had been hiding for years, practicing this technique, then reveals it. But that's not the case. He is capable of seeing what he needs to have done and knowing what he needs to do to get to that. And it is so humbling, you know, when, you know, when you're surrounded by someone at that level where it just goes, Oh man, like it, it's it's he's he's amazing. I have to think that Johnson is is the Bernie Wrightson of this generation. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, doesn't do enough comic books. I wish he did. I like. Well, I love but, his. But 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 Dave is at least smart enough to monetize his skill set. Well, for sure. Yeah. No. 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 I mean, that's 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 the thing. I mean, you know, he. Uh, but he's so. Yeah, I don't. It, it's it's. But he's like one of those people. There are there are handful of people who just you go man you just you know how to break or solve solve a problem that is just out of my reach 
look, I have, I have lunch on a regular basis with Dave Chirello and, and Bill Sienkiewicz with occasional guests. And, um, you know, it's like I'm the old man at the table by 10 years. And, but I, I mean, I look at Sienkiewicz, Sienkiewicz's work is, is just like, it's awe-inspiring. I, yeah. I, I don't think, I mean, I just don't. You know, I'm, I'm a very conventional guy in, in, in a, in, in, in by comparison to Bill and by comparison to Dave. Um, I, I like, I like a panel page, but I'm not, you know, I may not work on the grid, but my work is very, you know, it's, it's methodical. I, I love that metronome re- reference that that is just, it really nails it in a beautiful way. I like that a lot. Um, you know, so when I look at a guy like, like Dave or Bill or Mark uh, or Chris Samney, you know, uh, it's just like, what the fuck? Yeah. I, why? You know, I mean, anecdotally, I remember I was in. I was at the Marvel offices when, when Golden's Pencils came in, that Avengers an- X-Men annual he did. <laughs> just like, and Gil Kane is looking at these things, and he had a meltdown. Was like, yeah. what the, I mean, he, he literally, he slipped into blind rage. He said, how the fuck does he do this? Like, yeah. Man. Well, it, it, yeah. I mean, listen, uh, of my journey. Really- yeah. <laughs> Of my generation, that that you know, Michael is the one you know who sort of kind of kicked our minds right. and, you know off our head, and you know, he's, he's the most well, influential artist that, uh, that come that's come into comics in the past forty five years. Yes, oh, they're, well, they're I, able to build careers out of out of aspects and tropes that he's thrown over his shoulder. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I've said it before, and you know, apologies to everyone who's heard this before, but like. I'm super fortunate that he's been my mentor for the last 30 plus years. Like I've known Michael and he's been, you know, nothing but the greatest support for me. And, but yeah, I remember being, I was at heroes this last summer and I can't remember who I was talking to, but I just said like, it is very strange. Like you look around and there's lines for people, you know, whoever's popular. And I'm like the guy who most everyone in here owes a lot of their work to doesn't have that line. And it's really interesting. It's just time, time just sort of erases all these sort of impact moments. Well, he's also working over the heads of the audience. I mean, um, yeah. the, the audience, we've, we've evolved into an entertainment landscape and it applies in, in many ways, not just comics, where the, it was like, is it popular because it's good or is it good because it's popular? And the, the aspirational nature of the work has become far more telling and more important than a, an acknowledgement of unattainable excellence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, you know, many of the most popular guys working in the business and comics are guys who draw the way the audience would draw if it could draw. Yeah. And, you know, the, the actual, the true experts are operating in a landscape that is a mystery to the audience's perspective. They it's don't have the challenge. eyes to it's, well, I mean, I, I, I like challenging stuff, you know, I mean, yeah, I, no, but I mean, but you like it because there's, and I'm, I'm telling you what you like, um, right, like but you, but you like it because for the same reason that I like it, because it sets out this question mark, like what, where, when, how, like I need to know. And I want to, I want to engage because I, and that's what, listen, that's why people become creators. Like you, you know, you, you cited those other phenomenal 
draftsmen in their in their right that you have lunch with and they're all you know hall of fame you know people with a pencil in their hand but the distinction is that you also have story burning in you that needs to be written down well that that's that's it i mean for me my work is defined by the synergy that exists between text and image right that's right about you know um i mean about a year year or so ago bill called and said uh we're doing there's gonna be a lecture series in Pasadena, traveling illustrators. And um, I went down, I drove down to Pasadena and going to Pasadena is like eating, in like eating my young in the Donner Pass. It's like a long drive, you know? <laughs> and um, and, and C.F. Payne delivered a lecture on, um, on design and illustration that was staggering because it pointed out and confirmed and reconfirmed so much of how I think about the, the endowment of visuals with narrative content and that the the maintenance of story, the the I mean I'm, I'm one of those guys who believes that that were he a contemporary of mine Robert Fawcett would be doing comics, you know because mm. his he was clearly story interested, and um, and again as I've said more than once my career lies it stands on the shoulders of five men, and you know Gil Kane Alex T I'm sorry Gil Kane Wallace Wood Gray Morrow Neil Adams and Joe Orlando, who was my rabbi at DC, who protected me from Carmen and Patino. And- Let's um, talk about Joe in a minute. Okay, go ahead. And and, and the, the great unifying factor of all those guys was none of them could write worth a shit. You know, I mean, they, they couldn't. <laughs> Orlando, Orlando was one of the best people I've ever known in my fucking life. Oh yeah. Just, just getting Joe to laugh, to make shit come out of Joe's nose was one of the great joys of my life. He and Jack Abel were two guys that my mission in life was to make them laugh uncontrollably, embarrassingly. <laughs> you know, that was my deal. But was Joe a, Orlando. Full yes. disclosure. So I went to SVA and Joe was my teacher for two years. And I was his TA for his last year at SVA before he, he had to leave because of his heart. And that's when Carmine took over. Um, Don't get me started. No, 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 but two very different personalities. But Joe, man, Joe was the, I mean, he was flat out the best teacher I had. And because Joe didn't treat us like students and kids, his job was to make us, put us into the fire and make us strong and hard to be able to do the job. And if you didn't want to do that, that wasn't his problem. No, I, my, I would always assume he treated you like staff. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's a great way to put it, yeah. <laughs> like, get to it. Quit fucking yeah. up. Um, I mean, he, he just, I once described him as being uh, like the Michelin tire man in a really good suit with a sense of humor. Mm. And, um, and it was just, he was sly and funny. And he came into his own as an older man. Because as a younger man, he, I think he felt just, you know, overshadowed by everybody around him. And he was the guy, I, mean, I don't know if you're aware of this, he was the reason why the Lampoon paid such incredibly high rates for comic art. No. Uh, he, he grossly inflated what, what people were getting paid in comics when he got hired by the Lampoon. He was one of the first guys to get hired by the Lampoon. And he told them these rates that were obscenely high. And they, and they, they believed them because they're they idiots, you know. Good. And they did. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. And, uh, and Joe picked up early on, as soon as, as soon as I got to D.C., that Carmine would hate me because of my association with Gil. And because they hated each other because they were children. Right. And um, 
and Car- and and Joe just protected me completely. And um, I mean, when when Bill Gaines was brought in, that that Carmine's idea about having Gaines come in to play around with the DC it was nothing. Never happened. Um, I was standing there with Weiss, and we were all a little high. And Joe, Joe, Joe just was <laughs> went into a rap about Cubit, Cubit, yeah, Cubit. And and Weiss just destroyed it. Destroyed Weiss. Weiss went bad shit, and he gouted like red wine all over Joe's shirt. <laughs> and, you know, Lando looked at him, looked at him, looked at me, looked at his shirt, and said, oh, "What the fuck?" <laughs> and he just kept going. It was fantastic. It was just the greatest. He was um, bless him, man. He, I, I, everybody. I mean, Joe Orlando was as beloved a figure at DC as Frank Jacoya was at Marvel. Everybody loved Frank. Everybody loved yeah. Joe. Uh, nobody has a bad word to say about Joe Orlando. And if they do, they're dead. Fuck. You know? Yeah. They, well, they, they, they never actually met the man, you know, I mean, it's no. just, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I really, you know, very fortunate, very fortunate. I, I learned a lot more from him in his class and I have that I actually did than will in his class. So. Yeah, but I, I, I was, you know, you know, I'm, I mean, my, I respect Eisner's work in the 1940s. I'm not a fan of Bill Eisner as a person. Um, I mean, Eisner is one of those guys who is deeply well regarded by the fans and held in a certain remove by by professionals. Uh, he was not he was not a beloved figure. I heard a I heard a great story a couple of days ago that I I'd love to. I, I really regret not having having heard it before I had room for additional back matter and, and hey kids, uh, I don't I don't know if it's true. No idea. It's it's a real snipey story, but it's a great story. Apparently, uh, when Stan and was was really hitting it hard at Marvel, and Marvel was really soaring and making serious business in the early mid sixties, Eisner put together a dinner at the Palm on Forty Fourth Street with a bunch of guys to discuss the idea of of putting putting Stan Stan out of business and doing we, we can do this right this this that, as opposed to the crap they're doing over there. Blah, blah, blah. And nobody came along. No, nobody agreed with Rill. And everybody was sort of, well, you know, maybe, but no, nah, nah, nah. Eisner excuses himself to go to the bathroom and then leaves, leaving them with the check, which I thought was an absolutely fabulous illustration. You know, it was just, I mean, I, I hope it's true because it's really funny. You know, wow. it's just right. You know, I love that stuff. You know? Yeah. I guess but, if you're not on board, you can pay for your own drinks. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. I, yeah. I, 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 again, it, it may be just as apocryphal. As Toth hanging Julie Schwartz out the window, which never really happened. But it's but you know, as I've said more than once about hey kids, a lot of it didn't happen, but it's still all true. <laughs> which, which is that's storytelling, you know. The um so the, point, so the point of I mean the point of like I mentioned earlier about point of view and in, in 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 writing and how like strong that is and i guess you know flag being your sort of first real true foray into that like was that a guiding metaphor for you like you know in your in your selection process or were you like you know was there like 50 percent of you saying i'll take what you know opportunities are out there and then the other half is like hunting for stuff i think it's both i i, I think yeah. that you know i mean i mean I, I was hired by marvel in the early aughts to teach a seminar twice a year i did it for six or seven years straight and the first day of the seminar was me beating the hobbyism out of the guys who had been assigned to me. Um, okay. Because there was this, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, we are making a living through our hobby. I mean, we are, 
comics are, are an inoculation process. When you meet comics for the first time, you either are stuck with them or you step away from them. And you, you, if, you're, if you're stuck with them, you can't do anything but. And one of the things I said was that you are no longer drawing comics for yourself on your mother's cutting board in the middle of the night on the dining table while everybody else is asleep. Then you start taking money from these people. You're a corporate cog. You're not putting one over on the man by behaving like an amateur, unprofessional asshole. Rather, you're letting writers get away with murder at your expense. And they're looking like, oh, my God. Because I have a reputation for being a contrarian and anti-corporatist and everything else. But my sensibility, as I said earlier in this chat, is that you do the work to the same level of quality for whoever you're working. And when I, when I, I mean, I aged out of Marvel at DC a dec over a decade ago. You know, I'm, the phone stopped ringing years ago. I'm good with that. Uh, I don't solicit work, so I'm okay with that too. And the, the reality is that sometimes you just got to make a living. Yeah. I mean, I no longer build for work. I work for free. I work ex exclusively on the back end because I can afford to. Because I, I, took, I took measures to make that possible. I've said recently that every choice I made outside of comic books was intended to make it possible for me to do comic books. In the 1970s, when I started my career, comics paid so shittily that the only way you could make a real living was if you had an advertising skill set on top of it. To that, I owe, I owe Neil a great deal. Um, I was grateful to get every couple of months a week's worth of work working at JWT or BBDNO mm -hmm. or BBD, uh, doing teeny frames for a day. And day rate for that was a buck and a half. You know, $150 a day, you get four of those in a row, you, you've made some, you made your, month, your, month, your month's nut. Yeah. And that turned into comps and everything else. And I had, I worked a lot of accounts for, for B&B. &B. Um, I did a lot of cigarette ads. I did a lot of uh, the commercials for stuff. And that, that made it possible to do comic books. By the time Flag came along, I was so in debt from having worked for Byron Price because there was no money from Byron at all. That Flag, the money that was that was offered on Flag saved my life. It, it, it eliminated my debt and made it possible for me to buy real estate. Nobody likes to hear this in comics because they, 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 want, they want this idea that comic book talent are a bunch of happy-go-looking guys like Stan presented. But the truth is, it's a job, it's a career, and it requires actual effort. And, and I, I worked in television. I, I moved to California specifically because I recognized the fact that despite the critical acclaim that Flag had achieved, despite the attention I was, I was accruing, it did not turn into money. I was not making anywhere near, I was, not, I was selling one issue of Flag to every 10, 20 of Watchmen or Dark Knight. Not that it was better or worse, right. but that for all the transgressive nature of both those books, they still looked like superhero comic books. And they, they still dealt with an audience that had been primed and induced to identify that as material it would want. And even back then, I recognized that Watchmen was a cautionary tale that ultimately became a training manual. Much like, Sammy, much like what makes Sammy run was written as a cautionary tale in the 1930s and became John Peters' uh, guidebook, how to, how to run his business. Um, so I, I moved to California specifically to get into, try to use my the, the, the credential that I had derived from American Flag to get into movie movie writing, and I ended up in television. It saved my life. I never worked on a television show I'd watch, but it saved my ass. It gave me a pension, and it gave me real estate, and it gave me it made it possible for me to be this old and not be a drag on the system. Right. And that being, 
I grew up on welfare. And I know what being a drag on the system feels like. It's shaming. And it's embarrassing. When I hear these Republican cockbags talk about welfare queens, uh, nobody's taken any pleasure in living in a state of poverty. Poverty is not a choice. It is an imposition. And um, I'm very grateful for the fact that I developed an actual work ethic in my late 20s, early 30s, which made it possible for me to step away from living on that kind of life. And um, it's hard because there are comic books does not attract a, uh, with all due respect, does not attract a, a, a metal giant population. And there are many, many people in the comic book business who, are, who, are, who seem simply earnestly believe that the, the attention and fame they're achieving today is going to remain that's that way tomorrow and the next week. And that's not necessarily the case. As you said with Michael, um, you know, the eyes of the audience are, are pickle. And there's a profound cultural amnesia that exists across the board in general, but in comics, it's very particular. Um, the, the audience really does not have a, an educated perspective to identify quality beyond aspiration. Right. You know, it's, it's, and there, there are guys out there who are usually popular whose skill sets would, would have make them, you know, would have been good guys for, you know, airbrushing wizards on the sides of bands, you know, um, just, you know, and come on, but you have an audience that, that was that literally was infantilized along with the comic book pro product in 1955. And then, you know? I mean, and you know, listen, the predominant number of people getting into the business are coming from that point of view as well. So, I mean, we're, you know, you have to <clears throat> balance that out and it's very, it's tough because, you know, this, this air, you know, this quote fame of whatever it is in comics is, is sort of really unique in the terms that you're being coming famous based off of a famous property that you're working on by and large, <laughs> you know? So it's sort of like if you were the, you know, Hey, I'm the keyboard player for the Beatles, like confusing the fact that you are the famous one, not because you're in the Beatles. Like, I mean, drawing the X-Men is like, being in the Beatles. I, I never thought of it quite that way, but I guess you're right. I mean, I, I, I didn't have the goods to attach myself to a super character at the time. So I was denied the access to, to achieving a, and the attention and fame that is mostly the, the route by which most of my colleagues and contemporaries took mm -hmm. to achieve any attention and fame. And, and, and so ultimately I had to do other stuff. And the other stuff I did is not of a particular interest to an audience that likes super mega, super monster, mutant dragon space stuff. And, you know, you talked earlier about my interest in science fiction. Um, I got wooed away from science fiction by Archie Goodwin and into crime stuff. And, you know, when I, when I have done science fiction since then, I feel like I'm, I'm hitting false notes. Um, I, I don't respond as an audience to this work. I'm not a huge fan. I try to watch, you know, I'm surrounded. By, I, I watch all that new. I, I, I've never seen the old Star Trek series. I was, I had a social life at that point. And, um, and I watched the, the, the first season of the, the new show on, on, on Paramount Plus or whatever it was. And it's like, this is like bullshit. It's like, why are they listening to 1970s music? Um, is that like us? We, 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 should we be listening to, uh, to harpsichord and clavichord? Is that what's going on? No, no, no. Um, I just, I found it incredibly patronizing and pandering, but then I come to realize that most of the stuff that's really successful today is patronizing and pandering. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, 
look, I mean, Batman, as I've said more than once, is about a 14-year-old boy's idea of what a rich guy on a bad day when he was eight would do with his money. Yeah. And, um, you know, the fact that you now have a, an entire audience of grown men and women, you know, mostly men, who, who are losing their hair, who are still in, in, in entertained and intrigued by, by this stuff is, is staggering to me. But I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, one of the reasons why Dark Knight was so popular was because it confirmed the hopes and suspicions of the audience, that it confirmed that you're entitled to like this stuff. It's okay. It's good. It's good. You're fine. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. It's good. It's good. Right. Um, I'm not convinced. You know, I'm, uh, and I, I like comics. I'm a comic book man. It's, yeah. it's my medium I work in. But I'm not interested in those stories that that continue to be about that stuff. You, you know, you said you sort of got seduced into crowdfunding, you know, because you kept it at arm's length. Um, what was the tipping point for you to go? I think the enthusiasm that was that was uh, and 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 enlisted in by I was enlisted by that that enthusiasm from uh, from from Mike Stratford, who's the uh, progenitor of this project. He's the guy who showed me the work. Um, and Jordan, Jordan Prosky at Zoo. Um, I, uh, I got caught up in the, uh, in the maelstrom enthusiasm. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I, I, re I respond reflexively to Star Spangled Banner. So I guess there's something of that in me as well. You know, um, you know um, I'm not easily seduced and, um, you know, but I can be abandoned. You know? so. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were, you know, we were talking about the, you know, the, the fights and tights world of comics and how, it, you know, it dominates things. But I'm, I mean, Howard, I'm totally in the belief that we are in this sort of golden era of, of the medium that people can actually do almost anything in comics to, to an audience. I completely agree. It's, but, but it's so niche. Yes. You know, uh, it is so niche based. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, we're, we're, we just finished the final touches of the complete trade paperback volume, volume three of Hey Kids Comics. And I know full well that when we do the omnibus, which is a given, it'll happen. There'll be more back matter. Maybe that Eisner story may show up in there after all. Um, and we're going to be doing a Black Kiss omnibus for next year as well. And I'll be doing a new 10 to 20 page story, a Halloween story. So, yeah, there, it's very niche based. But... Um, but the market remains dominated by super duper stuff and, and the, and the anime stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the anime stuff has this short shelf life, whereas the superhero stuff, people seem to get old reading it. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, the, um, you know, you know, I'm assuming after I'm dead, I'll be, I'll be uh, noticed at this, but that the niche work deserves attention um alongside the uh the more the more popular commercial stuff um i mean i i really don't chase commercial ideas i i chase ideas that intrigue and, and interest me um you know I, I having finished hey kids and this is being on my desk right now my editor asked me what's next what are we going to do next and i don't know yet i don't know right um I don't have any idea. I, I'd love to find a way to do something actually funny. You know, I mean, a, a real, a comedy book. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, but I don't, I don't know if I have the have the goods, of, the goods of the, or the the skill set. I don't know. Who can say? 
I'm, you know, people, oh, you should be, you're so funny. I'm not funny. I'm clever. I'm witty. You know, I'm, sure. I'm spontaneously clever, you know, but not, not funny in a, uh, in a, in a traditional get up and make people laugh sense, you know, and, um, and I'm, and I'm um, a polarizing figure. I'm easily, easy to dislike because I, um, you know, I have florets instead of tourettes, you know, not being afraid to express yourself, you know, that, that sense of challenge to, you know, whatever people may think is what decorum or status quo should be is divisive. And that sucks because it's not that you're, it's not that like, it's intentionally like, I want to fuck with some you or what you like. It doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Like you, what you believe and what I believe can be completely different, but we can still, you know, coexist. Look, I mean, I, 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 I have a, a capacity to, I contain multitudes, as I've said more than once. What? Like, yeah, well, you know, it's like Walt Whitman, America's favorite homosexual racist poet. Uh, you know, I mean, I love that stuff. Um, you know, I mean, I have a, I don't have, I don't have an affinity for opportunism. It, it, it skipped me, you know, and I'm, uh, and I'm grateful for that. I, um, yeah. I'm also really lucky, as I've said more than once, that I identified that there would be a problem should I get this old and I did something about it when I could. That's a really important thing for me. Um, that that I'm, 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 an, I'm an ant in a grasshopper's business. And, um, and for those of you who actually grew up you know, with, with, an, with, with an education, you read Aesop, that's an Aesop fable, called the grasshopper and the ant, look it up. Um, <laughs> it's astonishing how people have what and dress up. Um, I'm I'm a grind, and you know I mean and, and the the blessing of my life I identified as a curse as a young man as a as a young man I realized that I had no real talent but I had hunger and blind rage, and that hunger and blind rage transformed itself into the grinding effect of cerebrally attaching myself to a skill set and developing a skill through repetition, not osmosis but actual labor. Yeah, And that doing that labor puts me in the position of being able to teach how to learn how to do what we do. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to listen. Anytime we get to get a long form thing that you've done, you know, and be able to plug it in my brain, it's always exciting to me. So I'm, uh, you know... it, it, this is not a, you know, a, a, a deep thinking thought piece. It's an absolute, right. it's, it's a rip snorting. My generation earnestly believed that we were going to be the rebirth of, an, of a new EC back in the 70s because we didn't realize that we were not, we, we always thought we'd survive superhero comic books, that we'd outgrow them because comic, superhero comics are drawn by 40-year-old guys our dad's age for children who are our younger brother's age. But we didn't realize that, that there would be a new bunch of guys coming in to draw superhero comics, look nothing like what we had thought they'd look like. And we were gobsmacked and never recovered. I still chase that EC vibe. Um, and for me, when I was a kid, it was about the science fiction books. Then it became about the crime books and the shock books. But it remains, has always been, the two-fisted and front lines. And I love the idea of adventure stories. And, it, and when I hear about the anecdotes that Harvey talks about, by having had Alan and Bill had no idea what he meant. It's so obvious. I mean, it's just, it's just, there's so much material out there. There's, there's Graham Greene. There's the, in, in more contemporary terms, there's John Lawton. There's uh, this, uh, there's Ali Monroe. Um, there's so much stuff out there that just demands 
that that this kind of short fiction stuff. And I'm and I'm I'm delighted to get the opportunity to to work my chops out on this kind of material. And I love yeah. this stuff. I would strongly encourage you uh, to get out there and take a look at the uh, at, at the Zoop campaign for Fargo Hell on Wheels. Uh, I'd be grateful and delighted, and and flattered. The campaign. Let's see. This is the this is Halloween spooky halloween this comes out so um <clears throat> what do we have like a week and a half from the, yes. from so yes great and they can go to zoop.gg um of course if i'm sure if you type in zoop anywhere it'll come up and it'll be in the description the link will go right people can chase it down um and you've got a murderer's row of people helping you out on art prints and all sorts of stuff it's look. It's going to be a great package at a great price. I cannot convey that highly enough. It's, it. I mean, I'm astonished at how, how we're coming in as we are. And uh, and again, let us get, get us to the finish line. I'd be really grateful. I'll be your best friend. No, look at that. <laughs> Uncle Howie will be your best friend. It's pathetic. You know, I'm, 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 I often describe myself as the weird Uncle Carl of grandparents, and that's how it is. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I, when I, I visit my grandson once a month, and we cook. We, we, we are, we cook together. So that, 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 that's the kind of life I'm living. How prosaic is that? Yes, it is prosaic, but it's me. So. Hey, Alex, thanks so much for having me. I'm yeah, but this is an absolute pleasure. Um, I, I, I was told I would have a great time uh, by many, many of our f uh, familiar friends. So uh, I'm glad that we were able to do this. Thanks, Howard. They don't call me the Archbishop of Fun for nothing. You know, <laughs> that's really what it's about, you know. So again, Most thanks again. And uh, and again, please love me, or at least pretend you like me. That'll work for me. <laughs> Have a great day.